0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Mark Levine is the former chairman of the Illinois State Board of Investment. He also started Chicago Asset Funding, which navigated the 2008 global financial crisis very profitably. In this conversation, we discuss runaway pension liabilities, the disciplined systematic approach Illinois used to go from third quartile of performance to top 8% in three years, the importance of overweighting tech and innovation, the index model of pensions, and what it will take to get Bitcoin in every pension portfolio. I really enjoyed this conversation with Mark, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is BlockFi. I'm a really happy user and an investor in the company. They currently have three products. The first allows you to buy and sell cryptocurrencies. The second allows you to deposit crypto and take out a US dollar loan against your collateral. And the third is my favorite product, which allows you to deposit crypto or a stable coin and earn up to 8.6% interest in an interest bearing account. BlockFi has been growing super fast and they've got a ton of cool products on the horizon, including a Bitcoin's reward credit card. So go check them out at blockfi.com pomp. Again, blockfi.com pomp. Next is Choice. They're our second sponsor. Choice is a new self-directed IRA product that I'm really excited about. If you're listening to this, you're probably part of the 7.1 million Bitcoin owners who have retirement accounts with dollars in them, but not Bitcoin. I was in that situation too, but that's no longer the case. I'm now a Choice user. You can now actually buy Bitcoin, real Bitcoin, in your retirement account. I'm talking about owning your private keys and using tax, tax advantage dollars to do it, too. Absolute game changer. So go check out Choice, a new self-directed IRA product that allows you to buy Bitcoin, hold the private keys, and use tax advantage dollars to do it. RetireWithChoice.com slash POMP. Again, retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. And then lastly, don't forget that I read a daily letter to over fifty thousand investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy to understand language while sharing my opinion on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Mark. I hope you guys enjoy it. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I am super excited to have Mark here today. Uh, he has, uh, he's the first person to come on a podcast who's actually sat on the pension side of the table uh, and made all of the decisions and kind of looked through everything that uh, we spent a lot of time talking with here. So Mark, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me, Bob. Yeah. Uh, for the like three people who watch this who don't know who you are, uh, let's just start with kind of your background and what did you do before you got to uh, the Board of Investments? Sure, sure, sure. So, um,
1: I come out of the financial world I um, back in uh, 1990, uh, which is literally a lifetime ago. Um, I came out of Kellogg and um, actually worked for a, a couple of banks in Chicago that Continental, which is now part of B of A, And I got in very, very early days. Okay, I got into securitization, so the the kind of creation of asset-backed securities. And so this is like five years after Lurie invented the mortgage-backed security. So it was the great. It was the most fun thing in the world because you were like inventing with every deal. You were inventing something, and and, you know, and it was you know. So it was really a blast. Pretty quickly, my at the time boss and later um, partner figured out that um, going through the whole process with rating agencies, et cetera, and creating a beautiful investment-grade bond um, was an enormous amount of work. And then we would get, like double the work and go to investors and actually, frankly, give them all the upside. So we developed, we actually invented a structured investment vehicle, um, which uh, were basically a, initially Merrill and later Solomon, which became Citi, would raise capital for us really off of our credit ratings and our track record as it got built up. Um, and uh, so we really financed all of our paper through the structure investment vehicle. In about 2004, I uh, started with uh, uh, with, a, with with a new partner, um, Jim Kostakis. we started Chicago Asset Funding to essentially do the same thing. Um, and uh, um, and uh, you know so so to, b- before we get kind of get to 0809, which was quite a uh, quite an experience. Um, you know, I, I so I invented all sorts of new asset classes in um, Aspect Securities, only because I was kind of the first one doing it, you know, wh- among the first people doing it. One of them funny enough was Precious Metals, which sort of plays a role in your world, right? And uh, so I did the first ever Securization of Gold, Silver, Platinum, um, uh, both, uh, you know, kind of the physical metal and and warehouse receipts and loans secured by that, did feature films and equipment leases, et cetera, et cetera. So, so then you kind of pop up like 08, 09 and Chicago said funding's kind of churning along, doing fine, not not so great, not so bad, making a decent living and um and then you know the sort of storm came, and the way our vehicle worked is we match funded our assets, which was quite unique, right because hedge funds of course have like redemption like uh, you know sort of rapid redemption and um and most structured investment vehicles had a lot of commercial paper funding like short-term, you know, kind of super risky balance sheet. All right. And, um, so we had our capital in let's call it late 08 lasted through 2012, 2013, which at that time literally was forever. All right. We're talking right after Lehman failed. Um, so that was permanent capital. And what we did was we moved, um, uh, so we, we had nice corporate paper. We were able to sell for 97 cents on the dollar, which, so, which was gold, right? And we're talking like September, October, 2000, right? 2008, right when Lehman's failing. And what we did was we, um, we did a few things with the money, but 80 to 90% of what we invested in were C were, were, was a, a thing called a CLO, which still, ex- you know, still exists big time today. Uh, um, actually, it's funny. In fact, my first boss and later partner in securitization invented the CLO back on El Bank in 1989. Um, or the way he would describe it, he exported financial disaster to the Japanese uh, by selling them the kind of B pieces. But um, but what a CLO is is a portfolio of senior secured loans, mostly to private equity owned businesses, and um, and then the, the the funding comes from from bonds in different tranches. So. Maybe the first 60 cents, 70 cents is a triple A, first pay, total money good, no matter like the, the world could come to an end. Then you have some Mez pieces, junior capital, and finally some equity. And we, we, we did buy some first pays, but we we bought a heck of a lot of uh, of the kind of junior, the sort of riskier, but with still with lots, of, we didn't buy the equity. Uh, we really couldn't based on our kind of investment guidelines. Um, uh, so we had nice capital underneath us portfolio of senior secured loans right so right so high yields unsecured high yield can get crushed okay in a like a, what we're living through with COVID, and we maybe should talk about that a little bit later but um senior secured loans like so these things initially we we're buying they were 50 you know, 50 60 cents later they were like 10 cents there were days pomp where um literally days where wachovia is one of our trading partners would tell me, Mark, you're the only bid in the world for SCLO paper, <laughs> okay? Seven cents, like, <laughs> and, uh, right? For literally, I, we, our view was these are par bonds, we're gonna get through this. The There's a lot of garbage paper out there. The mortgage derivative paper was complete garbage and was five cents and deserved to be five cents, right? It was best kind of six, like, you could spend five and make six, we were spending 10 to make 100. Um, and, and then, you know, kind of mid-09, late, kind of late second quarter 2009, um, I got kind of handed to him like Geithner's, um, th- you know, those stress tests, if you recall that, that then led to a bunch of, that kind of went on the back of TARP and led to a bunch of equity offerings by all the big banks, that completely re- reliquified Everything in our world. Okay. So all the stuff that was getting crushed, not on solvency, but on just illiquidity. All right. Just it's it so beautiful. Like the clouds parted and, and our, you know, 10 cent bonds were back to 60 cents like that, you know, like, and all of a sudden it's like, holy shit. Like we, uh, you know, we, and this wasn't a two and 20 vehicle. Like we owned the equity. So we were making the money and it was just freaking awesome. So, um, so that's kind of what led me, I know I'm talking at you a lot here, I could, uh, you know, so to transition now to how I ended up at the pension, all right, um, so I pop out of that whole thing and I, I go from a guy making, you know, 20, 30 bips on a few dollars to, you know, really having some money and, um, so I kind of wanted to give back (laughs) and, um. Yeah, you know, and you sort of want to use your skill set and capabilities to right. That's uh, the way I think. Kind of everyone should approach this kind of thing. And um, so, I, yeah, I met this guy who ended up running for governor, and um, you know, and uh, and I started actually writing about. So here in Illinois, as you know, and I know, we're going to talk quite a bit about the um, uh, right. We we have a, you know a pension system that on the liability front, okay. Uh, right was you know all these promises that could never be kept and is literally just a complete you know, train wreck that has been in process and very obvious for twenty five years. I started writing about that I even did a I did a little bit of TV, which worked out quite well because I kind of got the nerves out in local TV and um, for sort of what happened later on um, and then um, so Bruce Rounder gets elected governor, and he asked me if I you know, want to serve on the pension, which we of course chatted about previously, he knew what the answer would be. And um, so that starts in 2015. So it's really, um, uh, that's kind of how I got started there.
0: And, and so let's talk about the Illinois pension, because I think that it is used constantly as like the poster child, usually yeah. in, a, in a negative connotation, uh, per, especially before you got there, right? And so um, maybe let's just start with how does a pension like that, that is so large, like it was like $24, $25 billion when uh, when you were there, how does it get so underfunded? Like what are the structural issues that end up leading to uh kind of when you step in, you're like, hey, we're already underfunded, like like we're already here, we gotta try to dig ourselves out of this hole. But how does that happen?
1: Okay. Um so first off, so Illinois has um uh it's three large state pensions at the, sorry, at the state level. Then there's a bunch of local pensions. So throughout kind of the government world, like a local police force might have its own pension. um, Now normally with teachers, there's usually a unified pension per state, which is why places like Illinois Teachers and Calsters, which is the California state teacher pension, how they get so freaking enormous. Um, And um, so... What a pension is, is you take money out of the, well, first they're negotiating collective bargaining. The, um, you'll take money out of a paycheck of a state employee, a teacher, maybe a university worker, and there are some corporate pensions as well, but now they mostly reside in the, kind of in the, you know, kind of government world. Um, they are, those, the way it should work and the way it really hasn't, you know, maybe it has in certain places, certainly not in Illinois, is then in a methodical way, okay? the state would match that contribution, okay? And um, that money, so that money's getting collected throughout a career, and it gets invested, ho- professionally, hopefully. And, um, and by the way, the problems in pensions really, I would all, I really say this across the country, the problems in pensions really hasn't been on the asset side. It has not been on the asset side. It's been on the liability side, and here's why. there was There was no connection between the, the funding that was coming in through the employees and through and through more importantly the employers right the states and the local you know local governments etc, and the benefits that were being promised they were completely disconnected so what you had was negotiations all right where on one side table you had union leadership doing exactly what they should be doing i don't <laughs> i don't quibble at all they're trying to get as much money as they can for the people they represent, and on the other side you had buffoons you know you had like like come on dude have a calculator like so no math on one side and perfect math perfect math on the other side so what happened was the promises could have never been kept and then you add on that the tonic which we're all very familiar with and you know this happens big time in illinois and this happened other it has happened other places all illinois is a poster child for for kind of screwing around with the formulas to fund the pension, where politicians love spending their budgets, okay, on things for cur- you know, current, you know, kind of current, you know, maybe that, and, and a lot of good things, transportation, education, police, I mean, things that have to be done and, and are, you know, necessary, and right? But, but um, so what they would do with these pensions is they'd come up with all kinds of ridiculous excuses to not fund them. And you, here's the thing, when you, as as your viewers know extremely well, when you start compounding, okay, and you take a holiday in like 1997, all right, 2020 comes along, you're 23, I mean, you compounded that, that's
0: how you end up at 40% funding. And and, and so really what you're talking about here is uh, you've got multiple sources of inflow, right? So you've got the employee's paycheck, there's a portion of that that's an inflow, the state yep. or the the government is supposed to match. In many cases, they either don't fully match or they don't match at all or whatever it is. Right. So there should be inflow, but you're not getting that capital. Yep. And then once you get the, the inflows into uh, what I'll just call kind of the asset management pool, that asset management pool then is grown through the investments through investment. that are made, right? And so you're, you're basically making the argument, which I tend to agree with, that like step one was, we told employees, hey, you're gonna get X, but it was impossible to deliver on X. And then step two was when we took the employee's capital and put it into the pool, the states didn't provide 100% of what they should have provided. And now you kind of have a double whammy. starting out the, the pool of capital that the investment team at the pension has is lower than what they should have had. And also the expectations of what they need to deliver are nearly impossible given what the union was able to, uh, to negotiate. Is that kind of a fair setting of the, the scenario?
1: That is, that's exactly right.
0: That's okay. exactly right. So you step in and uh, what was the underfunding status when you took over as, a, as the chairman?
1: So, under this will sound better. I, I really don't deserve the, um, the how sort of good this might sound. The whole thing is at such a ridiculous level. I came in; it was probably thirty percent. I ended; it was forty percent. Uh, and um, and and so the reasons for that aren't. It's not any magic that I did. I mean, I did. I will say this: when I got there, are um, by the, to, to take a further step back, the twenty-four billion dollars that ISB manages now. Um, which is about what it managed a year ago when I left, um, year, a little over a year ago. Uh, when I got there, we managed $18 billion. So we had a nice four-year run. We didn't do stupid things, and, and we did some good stuff. And although I think really the the great things we did are even more so sort of in the future. We'll talk about kind of rankings and and kind of the evidence of uh, the success we had. But the other piece of it is, is that the truth of the matter is that states... Illinois, big time, and I'd say states across the country have done a much, much better job. They fell super behind, but they've done a better job keeping up over the last, let's call it 10 years. Okay. So Illinois, the last you know, hasn't missed a pension contribution in quite a while. Now, um, so we had some massive growth. We had, we had okay. We we had at least they were running on the treadmill where you just you sort of hope to stay in the same
0: place. So that, that occurred and and that's kind of where we are. Okay. And so what was the actuary rate of return? And for those that don't know, actuary rate of return basically is uh, there's an outside uh, group that comes in and would say, Mark, you, the board, the investment team, you guys need to hit 7% or whatever the number is every year for the next, you know, 10, 20 years. And if you do that, we can compound this money at a rate that will make sure we have enough to pay out the liabilities in the future. What was your guy's actuary rate of return? Okay.
1: So when I took over the rate was eight. the discount rate that was eight and a half percent. All right. When I left, I know it's ridiculous. So when I left it was, so I used some of the stuff I used to write back, you know, way back in the day, kind of, um, uh, before I, I ran the pension would be like, come on guys. Like that's completely absurd. Like let's, at least you six like the corporate pension plans do like i mean and by the way pop the the biggest joke of this is that and this is you know shame on the accounts i think big shame on the accounts is that that rate is determined based on an expected rate of return on the assets okay we're at the time, right, 30 to let's you know, 30 to 40 percent funded. We don't have assets. We don't have assets. So we're using a rate of return on assets and we don't have assets. And the accountants are okay with this. Like in fact, the accounts force you to do it. Like I complain, and then people said, Well, I mean, the accounts, this is how accounts tell us to compute, you know, pension liabilities. And and by the way, what the that's you really hit on the key, key point because that discount rate for all of the actuarial assumptions, and there's plenty of totally goofy ones, all right? Life expectancy, they always get wrong. They always get wrong because they never assume innovation <laughs> and people are going to live longer. But, um, but the key variable is always a discount rate because what comes out of those collective bargaining negotiations and contracts is actuaries absolutely can estimate how what the stream of cash flows are required okay and by the way that's so that's a number that i would always use i say look you want to discount 80%, that's your freaking business okay i'm not doing that i'm going to just add the cash flows which by the way in illinois is about is between kind of 550 600 billion dollars with about 90 billion dollars set aside okay right now so wow. that's if you just add the cash flows now Um, right now, when they're discounted, that's how you end up at $120 billion, right? Because that 600 comes down to 320-ish, whatever the number is. And um,
0: right, so so that's, yeah. You you said earlier that the pensions have done a good job over the last 10 years. My first thought is, well, that also happened to uh, nicely coincide with the longest bull market in history. How much of uh, what I will call um, the structural issues or uh, aspects of the financial system and kind of the inflating through QE, et cetera, of those asset prices over a full decade, uh, do you kind of contribute the fact that pensions have done better at keeping up versus is there some other change that pensions have had in terms of they've gotten smarter or they've changed their strategy or is it literally just, hey, we got in the right position and the market kind of carried us from there?
1: No, no, no. So I don't really think it has anything to do on the asset side or, um, you know, inflation of asset prices which you and I don't exi- that's one place we won't exactly see eye to eye because I you know, I'm not as sort of skeptical of valuations and um but we'll get to that um, later really though where your question does come into play though is that you had a you had a, a nice economy that kind of just kept chugging along um, right? The kind of, you know, was it the, the sort of work, kind of like a workhorse, right? You never had the beautiful three, 4% growth, but you had nice to steady 2% growth. And so tax revenues grew. And so what, what, what governors Quinn Rauner and now Prisker all did, I, you got to sort of tip your hat to them is, um, you know, well, you would have liked to seen them reform the pension because you can never really catch up. But what they did do was they took kind of all the the additional kind of tax revenues starved the rest of, of state government, which which may or may not have been a good idea, um, and um, probably not, and um, and all that money just got sucked into this freaking big, you know, pension hairball. Just sucks in everything, and um, and I think that really explains. So I think it was they like had
0: the money. Is kind of, yeah. yeah. And so when you stepped in, uh, I, re- I actually remember this. Uh, there was a huge focus on historically pension managers have essentially gone out, found the best asset managers you know, in the world, uh, and they give them the money. And there's all these questions about fees and structure and risk they're taking and kind of all the things that come with who are we giving our money to and you know, what is the probability that they're gonna give us back a great return you took a very different approach uh, and one that I think now has become uh, one replicated in other places, uh, but two also more and more people are starting to say, wait a second, like that may be something that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk through just kind of at a high level, like what the philosophy of the uh, investment strategy is, and then we can get into some more of the tactical things that you guys did.
1: Awesome. Okay. Um, So here's the philosophy is for starters, so pensions allocate asset, right? We we have an you know an asset allocation to exactly what you'd expect, right? To stocks, bonds, real estate, uh, other you know some pensions might have commodities, might have diversifying strategies. I mean, all so there's all different things, and then of course there's subclasses within those. Okay. The um, now within so so that's kind of the top of the stack. Let's say are the are the asset classes, then sub-asset classes. And then how do you get those invested? Most pensions allocate, invest that money, which we'll call allocating, okay? Um, invest that money through third-party managers. That is smart. That is a smart way to do it, okay? That is smart, if I didn't mention it three times already. Um, what you, I, I, you don't want to build some big investment team to be picking stocks, finding private equity investments, God help you. Pensions have done all right in direct investing in real estate. Um, And I saw you had a tweet last night, somebody wants to talk about real estate absolutely in a little bit um, when when we're drilling down. Um, so they've done okay in that and there's just a sort of limited kind of trouble you can get in, let's say, with real estate, um, unless the brother-in-law, one of the trustees, uh, right, is, is a developer and, you know, you're laughing,
0: pal. <laughs> <Bell. laughs> I'm laughing because I've read the stories. I know what happens. <laughs> so, but like okay. when, so, when, so when you took over, right, there's 24, or 18 to $24 billion somewhere in there. Uh, you guys are actually not doing well. Third, third percent or quartile of performance. And you basically, from what I understand, walked in and just started saying, look, let's get into kind of a, just start slashing fees, make sure that we're not spending a bunch of money to to actually get our capital invested. Um, And then you took this kind of disciplined, systematic approach that was really focused on innovation. So kind of explain what that means when you say a disciplined, systematic approach with an overweight or focus on kind of technology and innovation.
1: Got it. Got it. Okay. So, um, so... The portfolio that I inherited um, had two, 300 managers across, right? So, no, po- could you imagine like, <laughs> it, and by the way, it was volunteer. Um, so, uh, I was re- willing to really kind of get in. I was going to be, you know, I, I was soon to be elected chairman. And But, I mean, what are you going to do with two or 300 managers? You can't possibly wrap your arms around it. And really, we should be focusing on the top of the stack, on allocation um, and, so right away, you know, I often say, I had no preconceived notions on things like hedge funds, private equity, credit, you know, opportunistic credit, real estate, et cetera. Um, but I did have a preconceived notion that a sh- you want to simplify, you want to be able to understand what the hell it is you have, right? You have board meetings quarterly. We by, maybe you'll have six a year, right? So, um, and you got a lot to do in them. And you've got a limited staff. So you want to simplify and it's fine I, I, in a million. So I, I love indexing. I index about half my, half my own assets. The beautiful thing about indexing is once you, you take that allocation to the top of the stack. I was telling you about you know, public market equities, domestic, right? Domestic internationally, right? If you do index, there's nothing to do. Like you're done. You don't need a staff. You don't need, you know, the board doesn't need to discuss it. You are going to get the market return, right? And there's all this attacking of, you know, that it's, you know, terrible and you end up owning a bunch of stuff. You know, I mean, look at the assets that to this day are the concentrations in the SP 500. So, which again, we can get to a little bit later. It's like sort of go through your question. So, so index, what I didn't realize though, is I had no idea. So all pensions Pensions operate around, around the government, right? They're funded by governments. You know, these state pensions, which is mo- most of the pension assets. Um, anytime you have government around, you're going to have politics around. And um, early on, like I got, it's unbelievable. I'm driving somewhere. I get a call, and I don't recognize the number, but it's a lobbyist. It's a lobbyist <laughs> calling me about something manager that they hear that we're going to be, you know, reducing, shortening the, you know, simplifying the manager roster. And, um, I'm like, do you realize you're calling me is a material piece of data, right? That will support getting rid of your, whoever you're calling me about. Please don't tell me the name. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, that happened. And that, by the way, happened more than once. Um, and, um, so I was, uh, I, (laughs) I, I was fortunate in that I had, you know, the governor and governor's staff were super supportive of what, kind of whatever it is I did, I think. And so, as soon as those calls went in over there, they're like, deal with Mark.
0: <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> I was a brick wall. Okay. And, and, and it feels like um, as you step in as the chairman, like really, you, you said it already, right? Like the goal is, do we get the asset allocation right? Meaning, we're going to take 10%, put it in real estate. We're going to put, you know, 60% in stocks. We're going to put in, you know, here's how we break it down across all the different indices, whatever it ends up being. Most people will then spend tons and tons of time on, well, which manager do we select within yeah. this bucket? Well, you're basically making the argument for, and you guys did, was you basically said, look, if most of people aren't going to beat the industry benchmark, then why don't we just invest in the industry benchmark? (laughs) And therefore, yes, there might be one or two people who beat it, but we're going to beat 80, 90% of the managers in this space anyways, by just investing in the benchmark. It's easier. We just buy it. We don't have to go and check on a manager, do all that kind of stuff. And then also it's usually much cheaper on top of that. Right. And there's
1: an, and there's an additional advantage, which is so the, the, the meeting that I was elected chairman of, we terminated. So there were four managers out of the hundreds that were on watch. So I'm like, Surely, if we have like 200 managers, we can, we can at least terminate the four that are on watch and have been on watch for a year, for or more than a year. So um, so sure enough, of course, the media was there and there was a, you know, articles were later, yada, yada, which I think actually, to me, they, they I think, started out as hit pieces. I think they made us look terrific. Um, but here's what I noticed, though. So in the Investment Committee meeting, when we were really getting into the guts of this, one of the trustees on the other side of the table I mean, got pretty pissed of like, you know, you're, you know, we got an RFP for general consultant, because which was kind of part of all of this. Um, and uh, you're terminating these matters like, you know, and got really pissed. And I could say, you know, this is kind of thing that I think happens over and over, often happens behind closed doors, maybe with a staffer, okay, who needs a board to like that. Anyway, once, it, sort of people chilled a little bit. And then we had board meeting and same kind of, you know, kind of energy entered the room, lots of heat. And then, so at one point they, the vote was going to be the vote the vote ended up being six to three um, and eight to one actually on a couple of terminations. So this trustee sits down, it's like, all right, Mark, what are you putting the money into? And I'm like, it's going to be indexed. And all the heat came out of the room. And that's what gave me the idea to write that first Wall Street Journal op-ed. What, all, like it, indexing not only is a terrific way to invest, okay? It also is a beautiful, beautiful governance tool to keep people out of trouble. Okay, like just recently that North Carolina senator, you know, or Georgia, wherever the hell they are, um, and you know, this has happened kind of over and over, where, right, it's like if you index, no, you're, you, sort of, you really become impenetrable from the peanut gallery shooting at you, and in this case, where some managers were getting terminated, and by the way, the managers are perfectly good people doing a professional job. I never once suggested that wasn't the case, and it wasn't the case. They were just kind of a little under their benchmark. At best, they'd be at their benchmark, and I was just trying to simplify things, and that's where our board ended up. And, um, and so by indexing, you take the insult out of it. And and the other piece of this, pomp is and actually, some, so there's a, a professor actually is at Arizona State, um, Sunil Wahal, who I've quoted a couple of times in some of my, some of my materials, has done great, great academic research, uh, which I kind of got obsessed with on institutional investor decisions. By the way, this is not just pensions. This is endowments, foundations. Everyone suffers from this. Of You're constantly firing managers and hiring other ones, okay, flavor of the month, all right? And so... It's like beautiful academic research that in like 80, 90% of the cases, the manager you replace that came in is kind of underperforming their benchmark as, you know, within sort of a year or two of, and you're just
0: running on a treadmill. You're wasting your time. And and I think that maybe it was Nevada is where there was a CIO and he not, and he like fired every, like literally the entire investment staff and he like put, I don't, I don't remember exactly but like 80, 90% of the capital was all in indexes. And then he would just kind of check on it like once a week. And, and the article I read kind of made it seem like, you know, he had a pretty easy life, right? He was managing <laughs> quite a bit of money.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I, I spent some time with him actually, um, at a, uh, we met at a conference and, you know, I gave him the big, you know, fist pump right out of the blocks. And so he's kind of the opposite of, he's we're very similar. He's sort of the opposite of me because I'm this kind of wild, you know, uh, <laughs> Right, mean, I love talking about what I'm doing. He's kind of the shy guy in the back of the room, but the guy is awesome. And um, so Tim Martin is a reporter for Wall Street Journal um, who covered pensions and is now in Asia. And um, he's the guy he actually put sort of me on the map um, and, our, and the Illinois, more importantly, the Illinois approach um, on the map. As, you know, when he wrote the, he wrote the article in kind of March, April. He wrote the he. By the way, he's the one who wrote the article you're referring to. So he put me on the map with this article of Mark Levine answering a question for a hedge fund executive at Boarding last week, like, why do I need you? <laughs> and, uh, oh, I don't know if you remember that article. But, um, right, and so then the, the full quote there, by the way, was, you know, this hedge fund guy, it, it, you know, literally, it, with a, two two one of our board members, says, you know, I got the smartest guys in the world, you know, why would you invest in a brain-dead index fund? I'm like, dude, I got Apple, I got Microsoft, I got Facebook, I got Amazon, I got Jamie Dimon and Warren Buffett allocating my capital. It's like. Why do I need you? So he used wide range. Anyway. And, um, and so
0: as part of this,
1: the one who wrote the Nevada. Yeah.
0: Got it. And so would it be fair to say that pretty much the approach that you've looked at is uh, unless you were able to invest in the top, you know point one of the. one of the 0.1%, kind of there's probably you know three asset managers in, in each category, unless you're an LP in those funds that are the absolute cream of the crop, yeah, everyone, anything else, you're better off going into the index for all the reasons that you described, right? It's kind of like that there is, you know, some 0.1 of 0.1% that is that cream of the crop, everything else indexing, and you're pretty much golden at that point if you get the asset allocation, right? Is that fair?
1: Yes, that, that is absolutely fair. And the first thing I always say is, um, uh, um, uh, by the way, you're getting some some noise out. Uh,
0: um, A little bit, but, but you're fine.
1: Oh, good, okay, 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 okay. sorry. So um, the first thing I always say, Pop, is, is if, if all you do is index, there's, there's just nothing wrong with that and you're probably gonna be better off than getting it, in most cases, you're gonna be better off. We actually thought that we had an approach, remember, we're $24 billion, like we have access to various resources, um, and had an approach that we believed in, which we'll get to soon, right, the outs- this outsourcing model. Um, but um, there's nothing wrong with indexing. That's, of course, what like Nevada does. They index 90% of portfolio, 10% equity. And by the way, when I met him, he's like, I don't, I'm not sure about that 10%. But, um, uh, but anyway, the, um, uh, if, if, if I could riff a bit on public market equity allocation, um, which is kind of where your question's going, Here's kind of the way I see it. Um, if if you have, I, I sort of like to to break it up into sort of structurally. And to me, the perfect public market equity portfolio is you start off with a big, big honking bunch of index, get that, you know, kind of get that core index. yeah. so that, you know, one thing is you you don't want to screw up so bad, right? From, you know, from sort of, Doing things on the periphery, which by the way would include just hiring any active manager, um, where you end up so far from normal equity returns that it sort of, that, that it's actually kind of super material to the returns of the fund. Right. So um, so I think you start off with a big chunk of passive, no matter what. Lay- then I layer on top of that, kind of three different sort of three areas. First would be factors, right? So factor, so Fama-French factors, the 1991 paper, right, won Nobel Prize, um, led to their, their Nobel Prize, um, that there are a few factors that are highly predictive, right, of um, right of potential outperformance. Now, I don't necessarily believe that those factors are value, vol, low vol, um, momentum, momentum was actually a sixth one, um, and, uh, anyway, small cap, so, um, uh, so, so you can invest in factors actually very very inexpensively. There's and by the way there's ETFs etc. Um, for you know for individual investors, you know we could pay like two bits to BlackRock or something like that, uh, and um, you know which is free, and um, and you know half that goes to the licensing the the you know the factor, um, and um, uh, so what I I like there's two things I like about factors not to do a ton of but to maybe do. 10, 10, 15 percent. Number one, it's a nice diversification off of your market cap weighted index, right? So, look, there is some truth that the, the the weights at the top of the you know the top of the stack of the S P 500, right? Is you know now 20, 22 percent. It's kind of been there in the past. That's okay, all right. But a nice little diversification away from that, which I, I almost kind of view as like kind of, sort of a diversification free lunch. The other piece, which maybe you'll get a sort of kick out of is so board members come onto these boards and they have views and that's good. Like, there's nothing wrong with having a view. What you wanna make sure is there isn't a view accompanied by a brother-in-law who happens to manage money in a, a way that is you know, consistent with that view. So factors give a staff and a board a very systematic way to, to, to sort of express views. So that's, fact, that's factors. Chapter, you know, Part Two, which we did, and I'll, so I'm I'm going to sort of change the order uh just a bit on how I view it personally. Um, But what we got this the idiosyncratic investing, so more kind of private equity style investing. There are some guys out there, Seth Klarman, a Chris Hahn, who, and we had some of these guys in our portfolio who are just it's just weird. Warren Buffett back in the day, okay. I, I'm as disappointed as everybody, believe me, with the way things have gone the last, particularly at that annual meeting this year. But, um, uh, very disappointed. But, um, uh, but idiosyncratic investors who don't, who are absolutely, all they're looking at is absolute return, okay, and concentrate. They will tend to concentrate like crazy. Chris Hahn, which is TCI, might have two names in his top 50, you know, half his portfolio. He does that all the time, okay? Um, and so that's something that we did quite a bit of, we did that, it drifted over to technology, which is where innovation, uh, so the, the other piece, which we didn't do, which had I stayed on, which I'd had enough, believe me, but, um, the third piece, when you're thinking about the structure of a public market equity portfolio is our kind of themes. And this is where, um, we're actually like your interview with Kathy Woods, I just loved, um, Right, so think Kathy in that, like the, this theme of innovation. And so that's actually why I invest my own money. So I have this theme that I just I happen to believe in that the IT departments across the world are going to be completely restructured over the next 10 years and they're going to move from on prem to cloud. Like it's uh, so that's a theme. Biotech's a thing. There's all sorts of different things. And um, right now, a theme is COVID, right? So it's funny, I see like these ETFs with um, like COVID ETFs, bullshit marketing, pardon my language where um, yeah, they're investing the, the, these vaccine manufacturers. No, 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 a COVID portfolio has cruise lines and real estate, like come on guys. So anyway, so that's up to me, a public market portfolio.
0: And, and so when you do that, you've got kind of the core in the indexes and then you've got factors, right? You've got the idiosyncratic and then you've got um, the, uh, the themes. One of the big themes that I think you guys did over the four years, and and so for people that don't know, is uh, under your guidance and and the rest of the board, the pension went from that third quartile to top 8% over kind of the three year period um, of all pension performance. So kind of it worked would be the takeaway from from that. Uh, You guys had an overweight and a focus on technology and innovation. And so maybe kind of talk a little bit about how you, kind of arrived at technology and innovation being that, uh, theme and then what you guys tactically did to get exposure in technology and innovation.
1: Okay. I wish I could tell you I'm a total genius and right. And the staff would like it, um, what we did was we had, so we, as I said, when we started, you know, we had actually 80 hedge fund managers when I started and we got rid of almost all of them, the ones that survived. And it, really were part of, um, came through, I mean, this is actually a, a pretty decent segue into the outsourcing side of our model. So we used a firm called Rock Creek to pick all of our active managers. Back in the day later, we did an RFP and we added High Vista to, and, and by the way, the portfolio today is like literally, diversified like portfolio, a thousand base points of alpha public market. I mean, crazy. That's how you end up top 8% last three years, top 3% last year. Um, the... Uh, so, Rock, the, the Rock Creek portfolio, and there was a little bit of nudging from me with um, with the folks over there. Of come on, let's concentrate. Like, I don't want you to have sixteen managers. That's too like narrow, narrow, narrow. And um, and that's where some of these idiosyncratic guys, like a like again, like a TCI, um, a Parvis, uh, but also some some managers. So these are managers that were in a portfolio for a, quite a while. Guys like Tiger Global, Co Two. I wish uh, uh, you know some firms that I like, like Will Rock and Sequoia, weren't Sequoia weren't in there, um, but um, but we had enough of it that um, right. So those guys they they thematically invested in tech, and we sort of watched it and liked it, <laughs> and um, uh, and it produced terrific returns and. Um, you, you know at the beginning I'm like cracking jokes I'm like oh yo know, thanks for investing in Google for us like I don't think we could have spot, I don't think we could have spotted that one but the truth of the matter is it was great that they had these big big overweights you know across tech, you know across technology and in fact going into small cap as well
0: yeah and and so one of the things that's really interesting to me is uh, and we've talked about it a million times on the podcast of just the best performing institutions whether they're foundations endowments pensions whatever it is uh, they tend to be overweight innovation like you're talking about here. And normally the way that they're doing that uh, a little bit of private equity, but really venture capital is is where they're finding a lot of that. And and you're kind of mentioning it here uh, to the tune of, you know, if you look at Dietrich Foundation, they're like 80, 90%. If you look at um, something like GMO, I think uh, Jeremy Grantham recently said he's like 70% in his personal portfolio of venture capital, like such outrageous allocations to the private markets uh, around venture capital that Obviously, a pension can't go do that. But where do you think about in terms of when you say overweight, like, what does that look like? Are we talking 5%, 10%? Are we talking getting to, you know, kind of 20%, 30% in venture capital? Like, where do you think for a conservative organization like a pension is actually realistic if they want to be overweight, they could get to?
1: Right. So for starters, as far as venture capital goes, you're exactly right that the endowments and Yale, of course, is the, um, the poster child of this right, that, you know, going back 30, 40 years, um, right. What happened, I think, I assume was a lot of these venture capital firms were operating with the universities, with like the, you know, the, right, the, the, the academics at the universities and that drifted over to the endowment. Thank God for those universities. I mean, because, right, some of these endowments pay, right, I actually met with, um, uh, with Tim Sullivan who works for David Swenson at Yale and, um, and has been with him, you know, almost from day one. Right, they pay forty percent of Yale's operating expenses while they're growing one billion dollars to thirty billion. While they're doing that, okay, with a lot with a heavy venture capital. Um, so the the problem, though, which you you sort of touched on, is that public pensions. So the, the great venture capital funds. Um, are one of two things, they're, they're, they, they might be these sort of larger guys and, and those guys, even a guy who's raising half a billion, billion dollars, he wants to do it $10 million at a time. He doesn't want to be dependent on one source, okay? So that's number one. So you can't get big dollars out if, if you can get in. And by the way, we were able to get into some. Um, and uh, the other thing is, again, the, even the smaller guys, right, it's, the problem is the bite sizes, this goes to my point of, you gotta have a structure, you gotta be able to manage the damn thing. So you can't have 800 different managers. Um, could you do sort of a fund of funds approach? That That's not a crazy idea at all. Um, and um, so where we ended up getting our innovation exposure, again, not from our, necessarily my decision, or um, but the result of our decisions. Um, we're more in the public market space, which by the way, there's amazing, like, it's, I don't know that it's any worse. I mean, the, um, right, if, if uh, If you're focusing on a micro to small cap um, public public market portfolio on the innovation innovation
0: front. Makes sense. And and then I guess one of the things that uh, people are paying attention to now, and and we've had a lot of asset managers come on and talk about it, but nobody from the pension side, is uh, there is complete... structural change, manipulation whatever going on in the markets out of necessity. So you get interest rates dropping to zero, right through emergency cuts, you get tons of quantitative easing and kind of the, you know, Fed balance sheet expanding at a very aggressive rate. How does that change the way that pensions think about managing their assets and Part of that ends up, will eventually lead us into the corporate bailouts and who holds the corporate debt and all that kind of stuff. But just from the structural stuff, so interest rates going to zero and tons of money printing, like how does that actually change the way a pension thinks about allocating their capital?
1: Okay, so I'm really glad you asked that. Um, The most important thing, I've talked about this so much, like over the years, um, the most important thing, whether, whether you're, frankly, whether you're a pension, an endowment Found out, like, frankly, an individual is you. The way to win at investing is to be a long-term investor. By the way, in this innovation space, God help you. God help you if you think you're going to like day trade or even have like a one-year time horizon, because you're going to get nailed. Like, you could own the best freaking thing in the world, but you can get nailed at any time. And um, I tell people if they've got like a three, I view if you have a three-year time horizon, that's really not long enough. Now, five-year I think is long. Okay, but um, you know, and certainly, I, I prefer like never like imagine that you'll never sell. So, I think it's really important for the managers of pension funds, endowments, etc., to understand that they are right. They are a um, they're a long term investor. It's a long game, and what matters in twenty twenty really isn't that decisive, right? It's what, what, the way the world looks, look, looks in 2050. And I sort of feel like you have to be optimistic. And, um, and I am actually extremely optimistic. And, and the reason why I'm so happy you asked this is this fixation on, and I'm sure I'm going counter now to many of your guests, this fixation on standard deviation, what a effing joke. What a joke. Standard deviation is your friend. As a pension investor, It's your friend. Explain your that. Friend. Explain that. Yeah.
0: Ex- explain oh. why that is.
1: Okay. So, and by the way, that entire hedge fund universe, right, sold themselves as a standard, like, just horrible. So, what standard is, it, right, so value, risk, standard deviation is your daily fluctuations in a stock price, in a bond price, in, what, you know, kind of whatever asset is your Bitcoin, in whatever asset you're talking about, okay? And, um, right, so what now what the what that volatility first of all there's standard deviation normally is measuring this daily volatility that in you know two, right 8 out of every 9 quarters is completely irrelevant okay um and and then gets maybe gets relevant in like the quarter we just ended right where the horrible like big big volatility okay the the stuff that happens day to day is just total noise, and yet it's discussed, right? Uh, frankly, I sadly on places like CNBC and Bloomberg, and um, right, and across the hedge fund world, and in boardrooms, um, I even think you know, Standard Deviation at a time like today, where it's you know cranked up big time because massive volatility, right? You have an S&P dropping by, third, by like 37%, then popping back up by third, like in, a month down, a month, like, oh my God. And, um, but even that, it's, it'll end up being transitory because it's all about what the earnings are, what the power of the economy and these companies you're investing in or the real estate projects that you build or invest in in 2040 and 2050. Okay, that's that's the game you're playing. Right. And so this um, if I might, um riff a bit here. Hedge funds, the reason for hedge funds are volatility dampening, right? Right, diversifying strategy. It's like, and they charge, you know, charging these ridiculous amounts for no returns, and it's all about the standard deviation portfolio. It's like, so like what are you getting? Like what, the way hedge funds and, and, and you know with hedge funds you got to separate them into the stock pickers and the derivative books um, so I'm really talking about the derivative books who have like returns of like one percent uh, right I mean over the last three years five years ten years they're horrible right and um, right fees have come down a bit it's like it's still a total waste of time and um, right but they have the, but they dampen volatility it's like um, we have bonds for that there's all sorts of things for that and you know what even if you believe in having a diversifying strategy as like I talked about with factors and the public market, public market equity book, um, you know, having a 5%. Yeah. It's like, we pay our bond guys, like eight basis points. Like that's what it's worth. So if somebody is going to, you know, you, you know, is going to have a dampen your volatility. That's, it's not a, this is not a two and 25. Right? You pay, you pay big fees. Okay. For big returns. Right, you actually want volatility. You want what's called tracking error. Right, you have to, your board better be ready, and as an individual, you better be ready for a really nasty quarter. Right, if you have a concentrated portfolio, or you have a that might be concentrated in certain stocks. Okay, like TCI, that might be concentrated in a theme, like what like what Ark, you know, what Kathy does, or we're Kotu or Tiger Global, you know, what those guys do. So, um, right, so that's, anyway, that's- uh, And
0: and what you're basically talking, this is always something that, um, and and we'll talk about Bitcoin here in a second, but like, this is always my point when it comes to Bitcoin, when people say, oh, Bitcoin's too volatile, right? And I always use kind of two examples. Let's say one, volatility is not a negative thing. You need volatility to drive returns over long periods of time. Right. So if something's not volatile, you'll never get a return from it and, yet, and yes, it won't go down, but it won't go up either. So volatility isn't necessarily bad when it goes against you. It's nasty when it goes with you, then, you know, it's your friend. But the example, the example I always go back to is Amazon, right? So uh, people have heard me say this a million times, but Amazon, since it went public for 20 something years has had a double digit drawdown every single year. The average intra-year drawdown is over 30%, and it drew down over 90% one time, but it's one of the best-performing stocks over the last 20 years. And so what I think you're talking about here is basically if you have high concentration and there is volatility... The shorter your time frame that you're looking at, the more likely it is you're gonna see a bad quarter, a bad week, a bad month, whatever it is. But over long periods of time, if you made the right asset allocation and something is hyper volatile, you should see a very large appreciation. And it's actually probably likely to be one of your best performers in your portfolio, right?
1: I agree 100% with every word you just said.
0: Okay, so. Why, why should pensions not put Bitcoin in their
1: portfolio?
0: <laughs> What's your thoughts, just Bitcoin in general, and how pensions, one, are looking at it right now, and two, uh, either the argument for or against what that looks like, putting you know such a hypervolatile asset that is new, right? It's only 10 years old or so, uh, into what is normally a pretty conservative uh, asset management environment.
1: Right. All right, so let's um, carve this up into various parts, okay? <laughs> so um, and uh, so I, I do want your audience to know, like I'm actually a friend in this, although there may be some things I say that aren't exactly what you wanna hear. Um, so Bitcoin really isn't ready yet for sure to be a full blown kind of asset class. So I'll almost view it like an assembly line Okay uh, to get into to, to be asset class status, and it, I think we 're years and years away from that at a public pension, at an endowment, and here 's why is the first thing that has that, that would need to happen, and we'll, we'll, let 's leave the merits to the side okay so we'll just talk about bitcoin as a as an investable asset, okay, uh, which I do believe it is um, uh, though i don 't own any myself, so the first thing is um, Ma- the managers you remember you're hiring managers to make your decisions, okay so within the asset classes that you've established, and i when I think about it there's sort of several different asset classes you could imagine bitcoin going in um and we'll get to that in just a sec so the the way this would work is first, some managers would put some bitcoin in it'll need to do well I mean unfortunately, like the vol this is the way it is pal like <laughs> um, if, uh, right, so if a manager puts in some Bitcoin and it drops by 50%, uh, they're not going to be talking about it, right? And, and, and by the way, and I'm okay with, like, I'm totally okay with all that. And, and, um, right, but, um, so it almost needs to start becoming an interesting story to, to even just register beyond some manager you happen to have hired who you let do whatever it is they do, invested in it. And I, by the way, I... So I'll tell you this. I'll give you. Okay, I'm going to give you a win here. Is if a ma- if, if if one of our managers had, assuming it was appropriate within their mandate, had invested in something like Bitcoin, I wouldn't have been upset at all. Not at all. I was, hey, dude, it's on you. Um, and and by the way, that's kind of the way you need to operate, right? I mean, you've got again, a lot to manage. You can't fix a too much. All right. So next up would. So we're talking about sort of an assembly, assembly line or funnel, whatever you want to call it. Um, the next stage, in my view, would be, does a board actually, right, and actually take, let's say, a create a sub-asset class. So take one of their categories, and I'll bring up three, as I'll just sort of throw them at you, and maybe you, I'm sure you have some views. Take a, take, create a sub-asset class for whether it's, cryptocurrency digital currency bitcoin in particular right graduate that would be a full graduation okay from um managers happen to do it to actually say i'm going to do this okay i'm going to do this and um and the asset classes i think about there commodities feel good to me but of course the funny thing about, about bitcoin is if guys like you are right and the 7.5 trillion dollar gold asset right is ready for this like right and you you got a 30xer um, of value discrepancy in store of value. Uh, um, it's funny that I don't think I need to explain to your audience. Uh, <laughs> um, maybe in, maybe you're kind of innovation buckets, right? So whether that's private or public, maybe an innovation manager. You could see it fitting in there, and then of course the last piece is if you have a diversifying strategy, which is where all these hedge funds are you could totally see it fitting in there as well.
0: Yeah. So uh, we went through this exercise. We, As we yep. were creating a fund, uh, we knew we wanted to go talk to public pensions. And this whole question of like, they have preset buckets of capital. And if you just walk in and say, hey, we're going to do Bitcoin uh, by itself, basically every single investment team looks around and goes, okay, what bucket should we take yep. capital from if we wanted to do this? Right. It was exactly what we are talking about. And uh, we thought that it's almost like a paralysis by analysis, right? That they just, they'll never be able to pick because it could go in each, any one of the buckets, whatever. So what we decided to do was we actually created a venture capital fund. And then we said, hey, look, we're going to put you know, 70, 80% of the capital into traditional venture capital investments in equity of companies, blah, blah, whatever. And then we will have 20 to 30% in Bitcoin as an innovation investment, right? There's no company that owns Bitcoins, so can't invest there. We'll just buy Bitcoin and hold it in the fund. And what we found was, uh, It had pros and cons. So the pros were, now people knew, okay, venture capital fund, I know exactly where my pool of capital for venture capital is. I know how to underwrite this. It looks very similar to other things I've done. Like I don't have to kind of build new muscle memory, but it brought into question, which was kind of one of the cons and and not really a total con, but but definitely was an obstacle was people saying, hey, do I actually want to have an illiquid vehicle that has a liquid investment in it? right? So do I want a venture capital investment that's got a, a, a liquid asset in it? And so it was very funny to kind of see while solving for one thing, you now bring up another question. But, you know, obviously, we've got the two public pensions in Virginia that who, who kind of came across the line, but they're the only two. So out of the you know hundreds of pensions in the United States, there's only two, you know, we kind of sit back and think all the time and say, look, is that a, a win or is that you found two very forward-thinking CIOs who kind of happen to be the tip of the spear and then everybody else is, you know, it's going to take five years for them to cross the, uh, cross the line? there?
1: Okay, so, so let me um, carve that up again. Uh, first of all, I think you found some innovative thinkers. Um, I think that's what I, I think that explains 100% explanation. Okay. Yeah, for sure. You happen to find open-minded people. All right. Um, and I, I'm not casting any dispersions on um, everybody else. It's hard when you're managing a, you know, a ton of money. Um, to, but, but here's where I will actually take on some of you because know, the conversations you had, I, have, I banged my head against the wall equally on different topics. Um, so for example, like we built a, an 8% allocation to an asset class called opportunistic credit. Uh, where, and there was we did, there was all this hand wringing of like, what, you know, is it, fix, you know, it's illiquid, or is it fixed income? That's mostly liquid. Is it private equity? It's not equity. I'm like, guys, we're targeting 15% returns. It's unleveraged, it's mostly first lien. Come on, like, you can't let accountants run the world. Like, let's, and I would say that in Jahar Faraday, our wonderful uh, CIO and, and now executive director, um, we're like, Mark, that's just not the way. And, and so she'd sort of manage me. It's funny, I'm chairman of the board. And, uh, but, but the accountants sadly do um, have enormous power. And um, and those challenges also, like consultants you know, are so, so important um, in that whole. So for what it's worth, by the way, as a, just a quick segue, there are many, many pensions where consultants, consultants might run the pension really, where the boards are, the, and staff are almost kind of just evaluating, just really rubber stamping. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm not even saying that's bad. Okay. But it is, I mean, it, it's just the way it is. Um, and, um, but in any event, okay. Every board, and so Warren Buffett attacks rightfully and, and hysterically attacks consultants. That, you know, he'll talk to, you know, a pension board about like, why, yeah, why didn't you just simplify your life? And why are you hiring all those consultants? And they nod, 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 and they go on, not your consultant And <laughs> like, <laughs> and um but consultants where, where, where um where buffett's wrong though is you need consultants the board needs consultants to get a piece of paper so the when you know right the media comes you know or potential litigation, whatever it you've gotta. Have that piece of paper, and and that is of value. And I mean, you're not going to find somebody that wasn't more kind of shake the system up than me. And I believe that. So
0: yeah, and, and I, mean, I think Buffett, to, to your point, I think Buffett is talking specifically about the financial investment perspective. What you're talking about is that's only one piece of it because you also kind of have to cover your ass as well to make yeah. sure that you've got other people looking at it, right?
1: Well, that's right. So it is total nonsense, and it's I mean, it's particularly nonsense in that what you what you had where you're trying to go into a private market portfolio and something happens to be more liquid it's like that's a good thing <laughs> like use your brain a little tiny bit the fact it's liquid if you're targeting you know if you got targeted returns you got tar- like and um Right. The, and, and look, venture capital firms are holding public stocks all the time. Right. When they have post IPO, they're not. They're locked up, and they, sometimes they hold even longer than that. The private equity fund. So that's complete nonsense. I mean, come on. Give me a break there. Um, so. Uh, so yeah. But there is this. Um, uh, right. This. This. Um, the, now. So. So what are the pension funds that um, that that invested? Uh,
0: Fairfax County Police Pension and the Fairfax County Employee Retirement Pension. Okay in, uh, in so, Virginia. So,
1: so that's good, so now you've got like a
0: right you got a beachhead and yeah. um and what well, and to your point, they invested in the first fund and Bitcoin went up almost one hundred percent so so there's a story around, hey, that was actually a pretty good decision that we made right and and uh, I, I think that um they already believe kind of like you do overweight technology, innovation, private market, you know, like 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 there's a uh, kind of a, a culture of doing that uh internally. And so again, when they first made the investment, you know, you're talking 20 basis points, 30 basis points of the portfolio. Like literally they've never said this to me, right? And the I'm forever grateful for them. But I, I got to imagine at some point they were like, stop bothering me with you know the, the 20 basis point you know, problems, right? I, I got much bigger things on the horizon.
1: Well, Bob, and- yeah, not, not, not to, we'll come back to this in a sec, but, but I have to use that point as a tangent to, um, I don't know if you saw the, the Forbes piece I wrote a few years ago on this topic of will you just described 0. 0. 0.3 or 0.4%. That's actually what pension fund boards who meet quarterly okay, so we'll spend all of their time on is 0.3% of this are totally immaterial. This is why actually we outsource. So the the third of our portfolio that we didn't index that were, you know, mostly private market assets, but also, you know, some public market, as we've discussed, you know, with, with what turned out to be an innovation um, bias, um, right? The uh, What we ended up doing with those guys, because we, right, we we know that there are two fundamental problems to public pension. There's the risk of political meddling, and there's also this, this resource constraint right, that you just can't spend, you know, you can't build some huge team. If you do, it'll probably get, they'll all get fired when the next governor's elected or something like that. So it just isn't a sustainable strategy. So my view was let's find two or three great, great firms that do this all day long, pay them, and it's a great, the greatest value in the world. We pay them a few basis points, okay? And we end up in also we're, again, like I said, we're t- actually top three percent last, you know, trailing year. I mean, a, you know, thousands of basis, like I shouldn't say hundreds of basis points of alpha, um, and um, through sort of so so it's anyway the zero point three. That's actually the business model pension funds, which is ridiculous. Um, so so you know, we can, of course, head back.
0: To let, let me ask this about Bitcoin. What do you think okay. has to happen? If you had to say, like, here are the milestones that, uh, for those that don't understand the pension world very well, they've never met with somebody in the pension world, like, what do you think the milestones are that Bitcoin has to hit in order for uh, pension investors to take it more seriously is how it play, right? People hate when I say that, but that's essentially what it is. Right now, it's this, you know, 150 to $200 billion asset, makes a lot of noise, but, It's pretty small compared to everything else they're looking at. Uh, And there's some teams maybe that have started to get up to speed on it, but not a lot. And so what do you think has to happen in order for it to be taken um, as kind of a more serious opportunity with the largest capital allocators in the world?
1: Okay, so I'm going to answer that question for how I would look at it. But But I kind of think that that would, I think what you'd end up with is once it got adopted once you had a let's say a bigger beachhead, um, what what could happen? I mean, and this is what happened within the hedge fund space, which is very very similar, right? Because no one kind of understands what the hell's going on there. Um, is once is there's a lot of copycat, right? So once it's accepted, maybe with a, a one of the the greats, so that could be a Yale endowment, one of the like major endowments, um, or better two or three or four or five, um, a Texas teachers, I'd like to think um, Illinois State Board of Investment is be my, right, maybe a state of Wisconsin, whatever, like a um, sort of a respected investor, okay? Um, so what does it take to get in there, right, to me is the question, right, to get that real heavy, heavy beachhead. Um, and I thought a little bit about that, actually, uh, just over, in fact, over the past couple of weeks, um, so these use cases to me to me okay you look at Amazon so Amazon starts out selling books okay, and people make fun of them yeah you know, you're putting like I used to joke it's like Jeff you know puts a five dollar bill in a books and sends and sends it to his customers right um, and um, right and then it went to CDs and toys and like and and then like selling right now, I think AWS might be the most important business in the world right it was Right, right. Um, just kind of kept knocking off use case, like, and you know, all the like all the greats, all the greats did that. Um, and I view Bitcoin exactly the same way. Like, so I was watching that um, uh, the the Anderson Horwitz uh, woman, it's um, some beautiful thirty minute, which God, everyone should watch. Um, go through some use cases of like remittances, like um, remittances. And so, seeing that, like in size, you know, diversity, like to me, diversity of usage, right? So, so, so that would be one, right? And you know, so there's stories like all the underbanked, right? And so I'm I'm a square investor, um, so I have, I guess, uh, sort of kind of Bitcoin exposure, sort of that way. Uh, The um, so the uh, like having use cases that are really robust. That, are, that you have metrics that you can really prove, okay? You can prove. Now, the, the things you've already knocked off, I'm sorry, I'm saying you, as the human Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> uh, what you've already knocked off is you You do have, a, I think, a really thriving like infrastructure you know, on the technology investment side. That's fabulous, right? Think about it, actually, how stupid is it? Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm getting negative, but how stupid it is that you do have pensions and endowments dying to get into some of these venture capital funds that are making these Bitcoin infrastructure investments, right? That really, if you're a true investor, which I fancy myself as, they're not going to work if Bitcoin doesn't work, okay? It's just, so you're sort of doing it already, and that's, a. but that, my friend, is a good fact, okay? That is a good fact to ultimately get to that kind of case two, let's say, of, right, sub-asset class status. So, robust, multiple use cases. Um, I, I mean, you're talking my language when you say, volatility, no sweat, okay, no problem at all. Volatility is you. you should expect and is a good thing. Um, you wanna get lucky, okay, and have good experiences for people. Um, and I, I know some people are worried about things. Um, it, it sounds like this criminal stuff is complete BS. Uh, that that's some kind of concentrated usage. Um, uh, the, um, the way you want to definitely be able to pound, like when people bring up this, there's a few whales that control this thing and they manipulate the market. You got to just be able to beat the crap out of that, right? You can't have those negative stories. That will screw you, okay? You, right, you want you, you got to get rid of impediments to yes. And, um, and again, just like you did, I think you did a nice job of, of finding... You got to find a home for it. These are different. You got to make the accounts happy. You got to make the consultants happy. And so does I, hopefully that. And, and,
0: yeah, no, I think you nailed it. And I think part of it too is uh, what we've seen, uh, not in the pension world, but I think in the more like endowment foundation world is there's almost this sense of uh, this is the ultimate venture bet. It's either worth incredible amounts of money or it's not going to work at all. Right. And so. <laughs> if you go to them and you say hey take 10% of your assets and go put it in this ecosystem they're like get out of my ha- you know get out of my room right if you instead say to them put 50 basis points to 100 basis points in this and it's going to not only go just into bitcoin itself but it's going to go into the ecosystem right there i think the way that most people are looking at it is over the last five, six years, that has been an incredible investment because it's appreciated so much. It's been a, a non-correlated asset, kind of all the things you want in a portfolio. Maybe that continues, maybe it doesn't. But if I put 50 basis points of my assets in and it goes to zero, I'm mad, right? Because I don't want to lose money, but you know my, my life's not over. We didn't lose all the money. If that 50 basis points now provides 500 plus uh, basis points of alpha in my portfolio, now i look like a genius right yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so i think that it's it's this really interesting asset that um provides a lot of opportunity but to your point i do think that it tends to kind of uh find an audience with people who already have an innovation um kind of mindset technology that that type of uh, uh interest that's where bitcoin is really kind of finding the institutional world
1: yeah and that's really what bitcoin is like it, it um Right? I mean, that's how Bitcoin would become successful is when you write this. So I've actually watched your debate with the shift with like this, this asinine argument about gold. The gold guys are way weirder. They're way weirder than you guys. Okay. The gold guy, like he's talking about jewelry, jewelry. It's like seven and a half trillion dollars. And you're talking about jewelry, like jewelry is pretty, but it ain't seven and a half trillion pretty okay and um, the industrial uses are tiny i mean come on so we already have an example right of why is gold worth what it's worth because it is right Right? because there's enough buyers and sellers on both sides that you're creating diversification right big i mean that's that's kind of where i go where i keep going is having lots and lots and lots of places to go for liquidity, let's say, diversity of uses, diversity of, um, right, of buyers and sellers and negative and positive, it's all sort of beautiful. And and for sure, it would be idiotic to go in and pitch 10%, you know, put 10% of an, institution, an institutional investor's money, right? Because think about it, they're definitely going to be on the front page of the newspaper, Okay if they're going to be on the front page when they make the investment, God help you. If the thing drops by 10%, like then it's like, you're an idiot. You threw away the money. What's he doing? That's yeah, right. Right. So no one's going to do that. It's like you walk before you can run. And oh yeah, And that's where also, that's why I kind of bring up sub asset class is, um and by the way, you can thrive as sub asset class. There's an argument. Private equity is a sub asset class of, of equities. Um, and they're, 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 those guys are doing okay. Um, so, Uh, one percent, you could have a one percent allocation. Um, what I kind of like in a sick way is, um, is this nonsense about paying like for let's think about like diversifying strategies or even commodities that of paying like a two and 20 or one in 10 or whatever. Um, Bitcoin is something you could get exposure to virtually for free, you could just open an account. Um, or you can have a manager. Like, like, there, there's so many different ways to do it. It's not necessarily like a promotional vehicle, which I hate. Okay, and I think that's um, I think that's actually quite helpful. As I think about, it. I've never really thought about that before. So. Um
0: yeah, no, I love it. The, the last thing I want to finish up talking about is uh, there's pensions across the country that are super underfunded, and you know, I think you nailed it on the head earlier. Uh, you can have literally the best investors in the world invest in the capital. It's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to actually get to uh, fully funded status in the next 10, 15, maybe even 20 years. What, how do you think about, uh, we've now seen a number of calls for government bailouts of the pension system. Right, and uh, I've seen a couple of different kind of proposals, if you will, or informal proposals as to how it would happen. But the general idea is, hey, the pension doesn't have enough money to pay its liabilities, and therefore, if the airlines are going to get bailouts, and you know, the MTA is going to get bailouts, and basically, the government's just going to become the sugar daddy for for a bunch of these different industries why not bail out local governments and pensions and state pensions and things like that? Like, how do you just think about that? And, and do you think that's possible? Like, do you think that actually could happen?
1: I think it will happen. Um, but not exactly the way you're describing or um, uh, it'll be, the, the Republicans will all call it a bailout and the Dems will be pissed about various other things. And it's the only way... Here's the here's the thing, is potholes must be repaired, traffic lights and street lights have to work, like governments have to operate, children need to be educated, okay? Please, like yeah. So, so ultimately, they have, You could have water, whatever waterfall you want, okay? That's happening first. All right. By the way, bondholders are always going to get screwed, um, and maybe should be screwed. Um in the kind of I view the waterfall as being, you know, that's the potholes and all that, that comes first, the pensions come second. Whether you agree or not, I'm not saying I I I want that. I'm just saying that's just the way it is. Um, and then um and then bondholders come third. Uh the fact the truth is that it's not just Illinois, that many, many, many states. And on the local level, it's even worse. Like they had, they were even worse at math, if that's possible. Um, and so you have these situations where all across the country, services are being cut. Like you're firing active policemen to pay a pension to his dad who was, a, who's, who's, who was retired 10 years ago. It's so stupid. And, um, and it, right, and so there are, are um, so, the, so somehow, that, but you do have a contract with these people and they do depend on the pension. Like I get the other side of the equation too. It's not, this is not, you, you gotta kind of try to put the politics to the side a little bit to get to a fix, and the fix would be um, would be reducing pension benefits, almost like a sort of a like a PBGC type thing. Okay, where for sure some baseline gets protected. The first thirty thousand, forty thousand dollars, something right. People have to eat, and yeah, right. The I don't, I sure as hell wouldn't want to be dependent on a COLA on these 3% raises, which is a big part of how pension, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll do this again one day, we'll go into really into the freaking weeds on all this stuff. Um, but yeah, there, there certainly pensions that are over seventy five hundred thousand dollars certainly all these raises, I mean, all this stuff, anything that was gimmicky, like the end of career spiking, which we'll talk about maybe on a future show, um, right, that would there's no way you can get uh, right washington to to come in for a bailout okay if you're not pounding the you know really pounding this thing so that it's not some freebie and the other thing you'd really have to do is exactly what pbgc does which is you'd have to cl- like lock the pension down where it's you know kind of it, it doesn't continue to grow stop digging the hole deeper which is something i used to write and talk about a lot so you stop digging the hole deeper, you work, you work on the benefit side. The state has to do whatever it was going to do. I mean, you know, it's so stupid. Like we had this pretty good pension reform bill that ended up getting tossed. Um, and, but, if, but naturally, because it's legislators, um, they cut the pension contributions from the state. This is back in like 2000, I think, 13 or 14. They cut the contribution while they were doing this very sensible things kind of around the edges, which even some union guys have come to me and said, that was actually fair. Um, but, and then the Illinois Supreme Court just tossed the whole thing and we're back to square one, which is just absolutely horrible, which is why the only, and by the way, the way they tossed it, and this is a really important fact, is that our the Illinois State Constitution, which was amended after the Beatles broke up, um, uh, so 1970, um, so these are. this is not like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, okay? These are the state legislators, a bunch of clowns, okay? Um, anyway, the um, state, so the state constitution and many others around the country say pensions can't be diminished or impaired. So they're literally saying that a local school board, okay, this is the magnitude of the problem, a local school board can give a raise to a teacher, can pay a superintendent $400,000, give a raise to a teacher in their last year to $200,000, have one year of bad Right, and that a legislate state legislature and a governor can't undo what is local. It's insane. It's insane. even Jerry Brown, the former governor of California, totally like totally agrees with that. So, what would it- so all the things I'm talking about in exchange for federal money, okay? And I know now you're. <laughs> I bet your Twitter is going to go nuts on that. But um, I'm not saying it should be a bailout. I'm just saying a grand bargain of freeze, reduce, fairly, protect, okay, and um, in exchange for um, right, for for some freaking meaningful federal money.
0: Yeah, and, and part Over of this the- is I, I think that um, I go to the mindset of like if I could choose anything – don't print any money, right, don't bail anybody out, whatever. But if you're gonna do it, right, which at this point is a foregone conclusion, find a way to give it to the people rather than go stuffing it in every corner of the, the nooks and crannies of the financial system where, you know, who knows what the hell happens to it. And it feels like a pension, right, is actually a pretty fair way to, and a pretty obvious way to get money into the hands of people who frankly do a job, in, in many cases, right, whether you're a fireman, a policeman, a teacher, whoever, You've done a job that uh, is essential to society, but doesn't get paid like it is in many cases, right?
1: I, I, I 100% agree. What we're really talking about is the human side of the equation where, um, right, you want to go after the excess, right? Nobody agrees that somebody who was a teacher for 25 years make an 80K, let's say. Great, fantastic. Then becomes a superintendent for their last five years, makes 400k a year, and now has a 400,000 dollars pension the rest of their life. If you went to a New York Life or Vanguard or somewhere for that annuity, that's a 10, 15 million dollar annuity. Okay, like no one thinks that's right. So, um, right. So I, to- but I totally agree with you. Like, keep it fair. The money's actually gonna get pumped. It's so unfair to like the policeman or a teacher. Where they're making some normal amount of money. They kind of live their whole life. My mom's a teacher, okay? Long retired now, right? Her, her, she always knew that pension was there. It was a major part of her decision making. And um, she was a teacher in Florida, so she didn't get sort of the beautiful pensions that you, know, you get in kind of other places, but it's, it's good. Um. So, uh, so I, I completely agree, and and what I'm saying. is so I say these things, and every like everyone hates me. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, but but I but I you know, think they, like, you know. want to cut our benefits, and then the you know and and the all you know, the Republicans are like you want a bailout. It's like no, yeah. like, something's got to be
0: done. Yeah, and, and and I think that's the key piece, right? It's like hey what is going on right now is unsustainable, obviously. And so what you're really almost saying is like, uh, what, what's the saying? Um, a, a great deal is where both sides walk away feeling like they gave it's up off. a little too much. Yeah. And, and it's like, that's actually probably what happens in that scenario, right? Is, you know, look, you're not going to get uh, the 100% of ridiculous things that you've been promised. Instead, you may only get 85%, which by the way, 85% means pretty damn good deal, Right. And then also there is some government funding uh, that ends up coming in and kind of making up the difference of, of whatever needs to be done. Um, yes. and, and then I think to your point on top of that is if you can also then improve the management of assets, not really by doing crazy things, it's actually by doing really basic things, right? And, <laughs> and kind of doing that across the board, you, you actually might have a kind of light at the end of the tunnel. You, you may be able to get there or at least get much closer to where you need to be um, and, and it kind of feels a little rational, right? Like it, like it doesn't feel like anything in there is that crazy in terms of, uh, uh, of how it would play out.
1: I always say it's like you just want to, this is like running the pension. You just want to make more good decisions than bad ones, right? And you just want to, the thing, the first day I met with the executive director after I was appointed the board, I said, the only thing, the one th- and only thing I will promise you, I will at all times be massively rational. And that's all we're talking about here. Just be try to be smart. None of this is actually like super like rocket science, right?
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, listen, I appreciate you taking so much time. This is absolutely amazing, and, and uh, I, I think that your track record, uh, while uh, while there as the chairman, was uh, was incredible. Obviously, speaks for itself in terms of going from the third quartile to a uh, top eight percent, top three percent. Um, what uh, if you could leave one piece of advice for uh, investors sitting at home who haven't had the experience you've had, kind of managing large capital pools and, and uh, going across uh, asset allocations, like what's the one thing that you've learned over your career that you like, this is the number one piece of advice I'd give to every single investor, um, if I could?
1: I'd actually keep saying what I was just saying, like just use your common sense, long-term perspective. Don't try, if, if, if you're confused, don't do it, right? Just use, right? And, um, and you're actually gonna probably, you're gonna probably get to a good place. If you just use your common sense, this is not, if, some, if something sounds super complicated, it's probably not great.
0: I, I love that. That's such a simple but important piece of advice that I think uh, people would do well listening to that. Uh, I finish up each episode asking two questions. The first is uh, what is the most important book you've ever read? Ah,
1: uh, uh, I'll give you two um, if I could. Um, Atlas Shrugged. Um, and the, I think it was the making of American capitalists, which was Roger Lowenstein's Warren Buffett, um, like look through all the transitory, right. And, um, yeah,
0: I, I love both of those. Uh, and the last question, uh, is a little bit more fun and then you get to ask me a question to end it. But the, uh, the last question is aliens, believer or non-believer?
1: Um, wow.
0: Believer. Why? Uh-oh. What a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Why why, why a believer? I'm a believer as well, but why?
1: Just mathematics. um, You multiply something a billion times a billion times a billion times a billion. At some point, there has to be some cell that... Combined with another cell somewhere, right? Like uh, <laughs> we can't be the only ones with these thermal vent, like vents or whatever the heck it is. I, that
0: <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. What uh, what one question do you have for me to uh, to finish this up?
1: So yeah, my, my so my question for you would just be um, so you you know my sort of my Bitcoin point. Um, so I'll go to your to you know sort of your sweet spot. Is how far do you think we are from really having? Ro- robust, diversified use cases and real, being able to walk into a room with, you know, across the table from an institutional investor and like this, you know, this is
0: real. So I'll give you two answers. One is on the use case side, uh, in terms of users themselves. Uh, If you go and you look at uh, the adjusted on-chain annual volume, so this is basically people using Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network, Doesn't include any of the exchange traded volume. And it also accounts for anything where uh, it's being used on chain, but it goes to like these large exchange wallets or anything like that. So it's really trying to get at like true what you and I would consider like users of Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. If you take that number, it is larger on an annual basis than Venmo's annual uh, volume and PayPal's annual volume and also Apple Pay. So basically, you have an asset that, if it's just a medium of exchange, right, a, a currency, it's bigger than many things that you and I probably use on a you know, daily, weekly, or monthly basis, right, in terms of technology that, that we understand. Now, the big question is, where is that happening? So I always joke and I say, you know, look, in the United States, the dollar-based system works pretty damn well for you and I, right? Like, like we don't have a, I don't have a fear waking up tomorrow that, like, the money's not going to be in the bank, right, or that the dollar's going to fail and drop by 50%. Of course, we're very fortunate in that sense, but there's a lot of people elsewhere in the world that are either worried about somebody seizing their assets, the currency failing, like all this crazy stuff, right? And so I think that actually Bitcoin uh, becomes this like no-brainer when you need it, right? And so uh, I recently had a, a, a woman come on the podcast uh, who's a founder in the space and an investor, uh, but her family uh, lives in Lebanon. And so right now, the, uh, the Lebanon currency, the Lebanese currency has uh, you know, fallen off a cliff, right? And so uh, there's a bunch of capital controls being put in place. Like literally, uh, there's protests in the street. They burnt down banks, like the, all this stuff. And she's like, look, the conversation throughout the entire country is two things. One, they want dollars, but they can't get them. Right. So they, they, they understand the quality and, and the stability of a dollar and everything that comes with it. They just can't get access to it. Right? They right. can't find it. There's a dark market, like all this kind of stuff. It's dangerous to go get it, whatever. So the next thing is like, hey, I got an Internet connection. Like, what is this Bitcoin thing? And so it's this weird thing where like that's a, a fringe use case. Right. Because there's only so many places in the world where the currency is failing or, or, or there's issues. What I do think will happen over a long period of time. And again, that might be 20 plus years is. Every day, there's a couple more people that end up opting in, opting in, opting in. Some of them out of necessity, some out of the, out of uh, kind of interest or intrigue. So, I think that that use case where the the volumes and, and the user base will continue to grow pretty uh, pretty aggressively over the, the coming years. In terms of walking into the institutional world there's two things that have surprised me. So I probably last year, I, I took 120 flights. So I don't know how many meetings I did, but you know, American Airlines said you did 120 flights. So I knew I flew a lot of places, talked to a lot of people. And the two things that surprised me were one, how many CIOs I talked to at endowments, foundations and pensions that held Bitcoin uh, individually, but did not have it in their portfolio uh, at work. And I would ask them why? And they're like, well, I basically, I believe in it. I kind of, you know, speculated a bunch of different things, um, but there's zero chance I could go to my board right now and have a conversation about Bitcoin, right? So kind of that, that, that kind of cover your ass, everything we talked about, like that was one piece that surprised me that they had it, but they, they didn't go to the boards with it. The second thing was, I was surprised at how many CIOs and investment teams We're more interested actually in the equity of the infrastructure than the asset itself. And so I, you know, ask them why, and then it made sense of, they're like, look, we've just seen this a million times before. Every time that there's some new thing, when we invest in the infrastructure, we end up making money. And so like, I don't know if this asset, meaning Bitcoin is going to end up being successful or not, but like the infrastructure always works for us. And that's where we're comfortable. We can cover our ass because we're buying equity in a private company and yada, you know, yada, yada, whatever. I think you make a great point of like, well, if the infrastructure ends up being valuable, that means that the asset is probably going to be valuable. I don't think that that connection has necessarily been made yet. And so I see a lot of capital flowing into the venture capital firms and things like that. I don't see, especially the pension level, I don't see a lot of people buying Bitcoin itself either through managers or directly.
1: The kind of shame of that, in a way, is that um, there's then this drag, this fee drag, right? And also some execution, and there's boatloads of execution risk, right? And surely not every Bitcoin infrastructure play is going to work. I mean, more than half of them will fail, guaranteed, right? So why not just sort of have the thing itself, if, if that's your thesis... Cut out the noise. And um, again, there's nothing wrong. I'm there's nothing at all wrong with, with investing in Bitcoin infrastructure, obviously. But I'm just saying that it's sort of that's so inconsistent. Um, but you know, what it is, they have a basket for it. The accounts, the damn accounts, win again.
0: I I, I couldn't agree more, man. All right, Mark, listen, thank you so much so much for uh, for doing this. This is fantastic. I think people will learn a ton. Um, You've got some uh, some life experience and career experience there that that people just don't get. So uh, we'll have to do this again in the future for sure.
1: Beautiful. Thanks so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed it. Great.